Support for this broadcast of Two Rivers 30 Minutes comes in part from a grant from Striffler's Family Funeral Homes. From TubeCityOnline.com, this is Two Rivers 30 Minutes, a weekly series of interviews with people making news around the McKeesport area. Produced by Tube City Community Media Incorporated, a nonprofit corporation. I'm Jason Toger, the executive director. On this show, we talk one-on-one with elected officials, community leaders, and others who are trying to make a difference in the Monyoc area. And we also take your questions and comments on Facebook and Twitter at Tube City Online. About two months ago, as you're hearing this, KDKA Radio in Pittsburgh celebrated its 100th anniversary, and we talked to Don Smith uh, a few weeks ago from RIDC. That is the uh, corporation that now controls the property that used to be Westinghouse's East Pittsburgh plant, where those early broadcasts emanated from. But there has been dispute for years and years and years over whether or not KDKA's claim to be the first radio station in the United States. Uh, we're going to explore some of those questions, actually, with our guest this morning. She is Donna Halper. She has had quite a career, uh, starting out uh, as a radio broadcaster herself, later on becoming a radio programmer and consultant. These days, she is one of the preeminent historians, in my opinion, of the radio industry in the United States. She is a professor at uh, Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She is the author of numerous books, including Invisible Stars, a Social History of Women in American Broadcasting. Donna Halper joins us from Massachusetts. Good morning. Hey, good morning. What a privilege to be on your program. Thank you so much for having me. Well, what a thrill to get to talk to you. Uh, you you have written many, many essays and articles uh, for encyclopedias and magazines about the broadcasting industry. We could do a whole program just on your career. You were, at, I think, uh, WMMS in Cleveland when you began championing uh, the career of a band known as Rush. That is correct. Yeah. Three guys from Toronto that at the time no one had ever heard of. And you sure can't say that today. You sure can't say that today. But but this morning we're going to talk about something a little closer here to Pittsburgh, actually very close to our backyard for our uh, the two radio stations we're on uh, in McKeesport and Braddock. And that is the, the history of broadcasting. KDKA claims that it is the first world's first commercial radio station, I think, having signed on uh, November 2nd, 1920 to broadcast the Harding Cox returns. And this is one of those things that it's drilled into all of our heads. If you if you grew up in Pittsburgh, if you're in the radio business, kids, I guess, learn it in school, probably that KDKA was the first radio station and the first radio broadcast was made in 1920. But it seems to me that like Porgy and Bess saying it Ain't necessarily so. Well, this is the triumph of publicity over fact, okay? And I say that kindly. Mm -hmm. I am one of the people who, when I was growing up, I learned it too. And by the way, if there are any students listening, said Donna, who had to reinvent herself as a professor a few years back, I went back to school when I was 55 and got my PhD when I was 64, but I'm still young and cute. And learning about stuff is what keeps you young and cute. And the reason I'm telling you any of this is not so you'll get out a marching band for me, but so that you'll get out a marching band for facts. And one of the things I did when I was studying for my PhD was I re-examined the so-called received wisdom about a whole bunch of stuff, not just, you know, this is not me pointing a finger and going, aha, 
KDKA, bunch of liars. No, mm-hmm. that's not what I'm saying mm-hmm. at all. I'm saying that for many years, stories have been set in motion, okay? And no one investigated them. No one fact-checked them. Fact-checking was not a thing, okay? It was a matter of somebody we really respect and admire said X. Let's all write down X. And from now on, we will tell everyone X. And that's what happened. KDKA was in those days owned by Westinghouse, which was a humongous company. For younger people today, it's very hard to overstate how influential Westinghouse was. They they no were kind of like the they were the 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 Apple or Microsoft of their Absolutely. day. Absolutely. Yeah. Wherever you were in your house, your apartment, whatever, you had Westinghouse appliances, okay? They did refrigerators, they did stoves. I mean, you name it, they did it, okay? And then they got into broadcasting. My point is when Westinghouse talked, a lot of newspapers and magazines listened because they were huge advertisers. And back then, just like today, sponsors and revenue in a commercial system are the name of the game, okay? So a long, long time ago, there was a little radio station in Medford Hillside, Massachusetts, about five miles from Boston. Now, I know what you're thinking, Donna. You're thinking, so what? The truth is, very big so what. This station went on the air in 1915 under the call letters 1XE. The X stood for experimental. Mm -hmm. And they broadcast voice and music. They played records. They got written up in the Boston Globe. Imagine my surprise. I'm just a college student, you know, returning student, doing research. I'm like, hmm. Yeah. 1915, that's before 1920. Right. And then I started doing some more research. I've written a journal article about mm-hmm. the history of this remarkable little radio station. If anybody wants to read it, I can send the link. But my point is, I looked, and the more I looked, the more I found other non-corporate radio stations that went on the air. Now, again, I know what you're thinking, Donna. You're thinking, wait, wait, wait. They were like ham stations. Uh, yeah, yes well, let's, no. let's let's get into that distinction here for a second. We're going to lose most of the audience, but it's it's uh, New Year's weekend. It's the holidays. So let's 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 entertain ourselves for a little bit. Donna Halper is a radio historian. She is a programmer and was a radio disc jockey herself. You can find her website at DonnaHalper.com. She is the author of multiple books, including Invisible Stars, A Social History of Women in American Broadcasting. We're talking about the history of American broadcasting and uh, what exactly did happen in East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1920 when KDKA says it went on the air. Let's let's. Rewind just a little bit here, the the history, because something did happen November 2nd, 1920 in East Pittsburgh. There was there was a man named Frank Conrad who worked for the Westinghouse Company in in East Pittsburgh. He had a ham radio station that he he started doing regular what he called uh, air concerts, I believe. Most assuredly, the same the same thing that Harold J. Power said when he started his in 1915. Yes, indeed. And I believe there was a station in Detroit which started in the 19 teens. Am I correct? Absolutely, uh, 8MK. And again, the the numbers for those that aren't into the jargon. 
Um, the there was no FCC back then. Okay, there's no Federal Communications Commission. There's the Department of Commerce, the Department of Commerce. Okay, and the Department of Commerce, got, you know, they governed trees and fish and you know trade and business. There, nobody expected that radio was going to be a thing. Okay, there's just amateur radio folks talking to each other, usually by Morse code. I was just going to say a lot of this was one of the distinctions here is that back then most people were doing telegraph. They were doing Morse code. That is correct. However, however, said Donna, putting on a fake Boston accent because nobody really talks that way. Um, The truth is that amateurs were increasingly talking to each other, just like you and I are talking to each other now. When Harold J. Power did his broadcasts to the ships at sea and to anybody else that was a ham radio operator, they were listening all over the East. They heard him. They sent him messages to let him know they heard him. And he wasn't the only one. There is evidence and very good evidence that Charles Doc Herold, H-E-R-R-O-L-D, for those that want to look it up. Charles Doc Herold and his then wife, Sybil, were on the air as early as 1911 doing voice and music from San Jose, California. So there are all these little amateurs, and I say little as in they weren't corporate, Mm -hmm. okay? There are all these little amateurs that are like, hey, I can not only use Morse code, I can talk to people. I can send out phonograph records. This is so cool. And so they started doing concerts. Now, the Department of Commerce doesn't really get involved because they're like, well, this is a harmless fad. Who cares? But they did divide up the country into numbers to tell you the region. So the fact that it was 1XE, that tells you that it was in the east, okay? The fact that it was 8MK, that was in the upper Midwest in Detroit, okay? We and still, so as, as an amateur operator, we still have these, what they call uh, uh, numbered districts or code districts. Absolutely. But you can tell Absolutely. where I'm W3MCK, and you can tell that I'm in the Pennsylvania, Maryland. That is correct. And when area. I was in ham radio in college, I was W1KBN, Whiskey One Kilo Bravo November, W. One KBN. We're talking with, so, with with Donna Halper. She's a radio historian, and we're talking a little bit about the the recent hundredth anniversary celebration of KDKA and some of the early days of broadcasting. Let me take you back even further, rewind even further to a disputed claim, and that is for a University of Pittsburgh professor by the name of Reginald Fessenden. Oh, who, it Reginald. was later claimed that he had done a Christmas Eve broadcast, so very timely this time of year, uh, yes. back in nineteen oh six. That he had broadcast, I believe, from Brant Rock, Massachusetts. Mm, and I later claimed that I was the Queen of France. Correct. And I am and, Tsar of um, all the Russias. As, I have as a magical said. pony. Yeah. You can see my magical pony. Can you see my magical pony? Um, it can fly. But here's the deal. This is another one of those things that, yeah, it may have happened, but there's not a lot of evidence that it did. And here's why. Reginald Fessenden was a prolific writer, and we have a ton of his writings. He talks about every important event in his career, complaining loudly that he never got the attention he felt he deserved. He was right, okay? He never did get the attention, part of which because he was famously cranky and did not want to schmooze with reporters and just really felt like, don't you know who I am? And the truth is, not a lot of people did know who he was. They should have. He did some amazing things. But a Christmas Eve broadcast, a lovely myth. 
that was started by his wife and his son when he was dying, okay, in the late 1920s. The fact is that Fessenden's writings exist. You can go on a wonderful website called worldradiohistory.com. It used to be called americanradiohistory.com. And the owner of the site, David Gleason, God bless him, has digitized hundreds and hundreds of radio magazines, including Radio News, for which Mr. Fessenden wrote like a six-part series on why he was the most amazing person who had ever lived. And we can debate whether he was, in fact, the most amazing person, but we can't debate that he listed all of his major achievements. And what did he never list? A Christmas Eve broadcast from 1906. Never listed it. Okay. Now, did he do a Christmas Eve broadcast? Maybe. But it was sort of a moot point because he had already done voice and music. He did voice and music as recently as a week before Christmas Eve, and there is writing about that. He did voice and music in 1905. He did it earlier than that. My point is, the Christmas Eve broadcast may very well have been a lovely story, well-intentioned by his wife to make sure he was remembered. We do remember him, but we may be remembering him on an incorrect date. I will never dispute that he was probably the first to do voice and music. I will dispute Christmas Eve 1906 because there is not one ounce of evidence that it ever happened. So for all of our University of Pittsburgh uh, alumni and listeners, there is there is some claim for Reginald Fessenden, but Absolutely. not for the Christmas Eve thing. We have to Not pop- for the Christmas Eve thing. And by the way, when you read his writings, I want to put a very heavy disclaimer on this, okay? And I have to tell my yeah. students this all the time. When you read his writings, be ready to cringe, okay? He was a person of his time, and he had certain prejudices that today are just considered pretty awful. But back in his day, and I'm not excusing him, back in his day, there was a ton of casual anti-Semitism, casual racism, casual sexism. And when I say casual, I mean even the supposedly educated people talked like this and so did Reginald Fessenden. So if you're looking for someone to be woke, he's not your guy. <laughs> Let's pause right there and uh, take a 30-second break. Donna Halper is our guest this morning. She is a historian, radio consultant, and a, a professor at Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You can find out more about her career and her writings at DonnaHalper.com. From the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation in downtown McKeesport, you're listening to Two Rivers 30 Minutes. We'll be right back. Support for this broadcast comes from Striffler's Family Funeral Homes. Since 1866, Striffler's has provided compassionate professional memorial services for families in White Oak, McKeesport, Dravosburg, Portview, and the surrounding areas. Striffler's offers comprehensive pre-planning services and aftercare. And through its affiliated company, Design Monuments, Strifflers also provides permanent markers and memorials crafted in stone, bronze, and other high-quality materials. Learn more at strifflers.com or call 412-678-6191. We, we, we were talking a little bit about these different disputed claims 
uh, you know, Reginald Fessenden, who was a professor at what is now the University of Pittsburgh. I think it was then called the Western University of Pennsylvania, that he was broadcasting music in 1906. You talked about 1915, where there's a station in in Detroit. Uh, Here in Pittsburgh, KQV uh, has often claimed that it started in 1919. Who even had a radio in like the World War I era? Let me circle back to something we started talking about. Yeah. I love talking about this stuff and I want to make sure that I'm sort of focused on one thing. Mm-hmm. The the KDKA story, and I understand that I'm on the air in Pennsylvania and I'm very grateful. I am not saying, nor is any reputable historian saying, that KDKA was not a pioneering station. Not saying that at all. I am, however, saying that broadcasting, just like any industry, has its founding myths, Okay. Somewhere down the line, after X happens, people get a hold of it. And those people are very often partisans, partisans as in they worked there or they knew the great man or later the great woman. And they were like, well, I'm going to make sure that person's legacy continues. And they don't mean it. They're not trying to be rude. They're not trying to lie. But as we get farther and farther away from the event itself, It becomes easier and easier for people to shape that narrative, okay? We're going to see this, I promise you, with the presidency of pick any of the past five presidents that many of us remember, okay? People in your audience very clearly remember Ronald Reagan. And yet we're automatically starting to see the stories, oh my God, Reagan said this. And you look back and you're like, Maybe he really didn't, but it doesn't matter because his believers believe he did. And we're seeing some of that with the KDKA story, the Reginald Fessenden story. See, people want to know where did it all begin? And very often there is no one clear answer. So let me just finish up by saying there is lots of evidence that KDKA was on the air on November 2nd, 1920. But here's who else was on the air on November 2nd, 1920. 1XE in Medford Hillside. We know we have writings. 8MK. We know we have writings. And 8MK in Detroit, which is still on the air today as WWJ, they were on the air doing, wait for it, election returns on August 30th, (laughs) August 31st. 1920. How do we know? Front page of the Detroit News and other regional newspapers. What's your point, Donna? My point is that August is before (laughs) November. Okay. So therefore, Mm -hmm. the idea that KDKA was the first station to broadcast election, no, they weren't. So here's what KDKA did. Their publicity department, working overtime, said, hey, we were the first station with a commercial license. I didn't know you weren't. There was no such thing as a commercial license back then. A commercial license meant you were a company run by a business. The official commercial license that we all know and love today didn't get created until 1921. And the first station to get one was another Westinghouse station, WBZ then in Springfield, today in Boston, Massachusetts. So the idea that KDKA was the first station with a commercial license is part of that whole mythology. And the fact that 8MK was an amateur is a distinction 
without a difference. It didn't mean a thing to people back in those days because the early radio listeners were mostly amateurs, friends of amateurs, families of amateurs, and wives and husbands of amateurs. And I say wives and husbands not to be politically correct, all my brothers and sisters, but because of the fact that my cultural hero was the late, great Eunice Randall. And Eunice was one of the early women amateurs and also one of the early women broadcasters. And we can place her on the air in 1919. Thank you very much. (laughs) Donna Halper is our guest this morning. And we're talking about the early history of broadcasting uh, with a specific focus on the 100th anniversary of KDKA Radio in Pittsburgh. Which is course, the sound that I hear all the KDKA people throwing stuff at the radio? Pro- that, probably, that, but we're down we're down at the other end of the dial. You know, okay. they can't okay. they can't hear us down they here anyway. Get us okay. Yeah, she is the author of Invisible Stars: A Social History of Women in American Broadcasting. You can find her website at donnahalper.com. I, I wanted to ask you who you you touched on this already that who was listening to radio in 1915 1916 1917 was were hobbyists basically it's the same people who now are building Raspberry Pi or Arduino or who are writing their own software code. It's 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 it was a hobby. You didn't just go down to the neighborhood store necessarily and buy a fully equipped radio. You didn't even you didn't even speaker, did you? You had headphones. No. One one of the things David Sarnoff, who was another great mythologizer, but one of the things he actually did as somebody who was the head of RCA. Radio Corporation of America, um, and later radio networks and other NBC. stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. But one thing Sarnoff did was he saw the future and he said, oh my God, there's an awful lot of people who are listening to ham radio, but they're having to build their own and not everybody knows how to build a radio set. So yes, just like anything else, like for example, I'm credited with discovering the rock band Rush, Okay. Now, when Rush first got started, when they first got airplay, when I was in Cleveland and I was a DJ and a music director, the first people that heard them became like super fans. But they apprenticed in family members, friends, cousins, neighbors. Like, what is that thing you're playing? Oh, that's a Canadian band called Rush. And pretty soon you've got people that never had heard of them. And suddenly they're like, where can I buy their record? Early radio was just like that. It started off with a few hobbyists sitting in their little bedrooms or sitting in their ham radio shack or whatever. And they send out some messages. They play some music. Pretty soon, somebody hears it and goes, wow, what is this magical thing you're doing? And they put on their headphones. I have an article from September of 1920. And again, September is before November. So people were listening to 8MK in Detroit. And they are just mystified by where is this dance music coming from? Because 8MK, which later gets fancy schmancy call letters, but back then radio isn't really a thing. So you use your ham call letters. So 8MK has an orchestra and they've got announcers and they're playing phonograph records and they're doing all the stuff that a modern station would do. And people who are tuning in because they're hams are listening for Morse code and they're hearing an orchestra. 
Right. And they're really puzzled. And they call into the Detroit News because they the station announces as, you know, 8MK at the Detroit News. Let us know if you're hearing us. And people are calling in like, you're playing dance music, dude. What, what What's up with the dance music? And pretty soon they're telling their friends. And as I said, I've got this article from September of 1920 where people are gathering in, you know, Mrs. Jones's house. And they're like, she's got this radio receiver. And we're like hearing dance music. People are stunned. They can't believe it. And they start telling people who start telling people. And pretty soon you've got an audience that you never had before when you were just sending out your little broadcast to a couple of your ham friends. For, for someone who is not a, a broadcasting nerd, not an engineer, um, but but maybe their curiosity has been piqued by this whole conversation, w- where is a good place for them to start learning about some of this early history? I remember a book that came out probably almost 30 years ago now called Empire of the Air. I think it was also a PBS uh, miniseries that was about the early days of broadcasting. Where, where should Where could someone start to kind of get a, a just an overview of, of some of this early radio history? Well, one book that I really like is a book called Only Connect, and it's by a scholar named Michelle Hilmes, H-I-L-M-E-S, Michelle Hilmes, okay? And it's a cultural history of radio. She writes about a lot of the same stuff that I do, although from a different direction. And she talks about how radio changed the culture, okay? Um, Some of her research for its time was really groundbreaking. I don't think the book has been updated since about 2010, which means that people should be able to get it on Google Scholar and places like that, or a used bookstore. But it's worth reading because it talks about a lot of stuff that a lot of the traditional history books don't talk about. I would also invite people to get in touch with me, and I'm pretty easy to get in touch with, Uh, My email is DLH, which is my initials, DLH at DonnaHalper.com. D-O-N-N-A-H-A is in applesauce, L-P is in potato, E-R, no N's, no T's, DLH at DonnaHalper.com. I will be delighted to share with you some of my research and some other people's research and some easy to read articles that will tell you about some of the interesting and exciting things that were happening in the history of this industry that I love so much. Uh, we're just about out of time so, so that our friends at, at KDKA don't burn down the, the radio stations. Uh, let, let's, let's wrap this up with what we do know about November 2nd, 1920. We know that Frank Conrad was an engineer for the Westinghouse Company. He lived in Wilkinsburg. He had a ham radio license as early as 1916 Absolutely. or there, thereabouts. Yes. He yes. started doing broadcasts from his home, which is which is now a Wendy's. From his garage, if I'm not mistaken. From his garage, which is now a Wendy's uh, on yeah. Penn Avenue in Wilkinsburg. But and in 1920, November 2nd, which by the way was not called the radio it was called back the, in those wireless? days. Partially wireless and then radio phone okay. because it was a combination of radio and telephone. So and, you would have seen if you're looking up old newspapers, yeah. you'll see the term radio phone a lot. And, and incidentally, on November 2nd, 1920, when 
KDKA or whatever call sign it was using on top of the Westinghouse. By that time, they had gotten permission. They went on the air as 8XK, I believe. And then they, or 8ZZ, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, he was 8XK. Yeah, Frank was 8XK. And 8ZZ got permission to use KDKA. All of that is not in dispute. I bow before Frank Conrad as a pioneer in broadcasting. However, I do not bow before the myth that KDKA was the first, the only, the only station in the world. It was not. (laughs) It had a number of other stations that were on the air too, a number of others that were on the air before it. That does not in any way diminish that KDKA was a pioneering station. It deserves my thanks. I love it to bits and pieces, but I'm not a fan of myth. Tell the truth about your history and your history is glorious enough so that you don't need the myths. Uh, Just focus on what you really did. A hundred years of continuous anything yes, is an achievement. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. My point exactly. Don, Donna Halper is a radio historian, a radio consultant, a longtime radio programmer. She is the author of Invisible Stars, A Social History of Women in American Broadcasting. You can find out more about her book, her writing, uh, and her career at her website, DonnaHalper.com. She joined us from her home near Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she is a professor of communication at Lesley University. Thank you so much. For taking some oh time to God, talk thanks about Thanks for having me. What a privilege. And thank you all for listening this morning to Two Rivers 30 Minutes broadcasting from the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation in downtown McKeesport. So long for now and happy new year. You've been listening to Two Rivers 30 Minutes, copyright Tube City Community Media Incorporated. Opinions expressed on this program are not those of Tube City Community Media Incorporated. Listener support makes this program possible. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our website at tubecityonline.com and click on the donate link. You can also get a free subscription to this program and other podcasts at our website using Apple's iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you've got a question or comment, we hope you'll write to us. Our address is Tube City Community Media Incorporated, P.O. Box 94, McKeesport, PA, 15134. You can email us at TubeCityTiger at gmail.com or call us at area code 412-614-9659. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at TubeCityOnline. Online.